working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to another episode of the podcast Working Drummer. Today is my interview with studio legend Chad Cromwell. Chad is known for his work with legends like Joe Walsh, Neil Young, and Mark Knopfler. Around Nashville, he's known for his work for other great artists like Vince Gill and Lady Annabellum. I'm super excited about this conversation. I've been a huge fan of Chad's for many years. I've met him once before, but uh, this was a great chance to sit down and chat. I hope you guys enjoyed as much as we did. As always, go to workingdrummer.net. You can find out more information about this podcast and others. You can go to iTunes where you can subscribe to this podcast where a new episode will be sent to your smart device every week. You can stream from there. You can also stream from our website. I want to mention once again, we're part of the Merge Network, so I want to do a shout-out to Drummer's Resource, which is Nick Ruffini's podcast, and Daniel Glass's podcast. If you haven't uh, checked those guys out, please do yourself a favor. Uh, they're both really great. One quick thing before we get started with Chad, we were talking about all the tornadoes that came through uh, the southeast and the damage that it did to his property and how it wiped out his barn. So we were kind of in the middle of that conversation when we start this uh, uh, when we start this podcast. You'll hear that and uh, how his uh, studio on his property came to be. So anyways, let's get to it. Here is Chad Cromwell. Basically about a half mile wide path that these things rolled through. Mm -hmm. And miraculously, our home stood. Everything else went down. The barn went down. Uh, we lost, uh, one of our horses was killed in, that, in, the, oh, wow. in the storm. It was terrible. And then, uh, then this structure that where we are now, the studio, was a, uh, a garage, a two-car carport, you know? And it just went to Kansas, you know, it just, poof, you know. And uh, so the studio was, the idea for the studio was born out of the fact that I literally had a blank slate. I had this, this concrete slab was the original footprint. And then I added on to the footprint after that to make it bigger. On the other side of that wall is another s section of the building, okay. you know. And, uh, yeah, so this, this place sort of came out of, I, it was out of necessity. I needed a studio. That's what you're saying. But the sad truth of, of it is that this, the, the garage building that was standing here, yeah. it, was, it was really problematic for trying to come up with a way to make it into a studio. That was the original plan. You were going to use what was there. And I was really struggling with how to, how to do it. And Mother Nature came up with an answer. Mother for Nature and Providence came right along. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was, it was, it was a very, very tough time yeah. for us. But, but, this thing is here. Yeah. You know? But it's amazing. It's really beautiful. Um, of course, you put a set of blonde craviatos in any room, and it makes it. Yeah, it kind of dresses the room up it a does, little bit. It does. It does. <laughs> and they haven't been moved. I put that kit there uh, almost six years ago. Are you serious? Yeah, it hasn't gone anywhere. <laughs> you know, I mean, I've changed, you know, the symbols around and whatever, but that kit, the basic kit, I, there's no reason to move it. Move it. There just isn't a reason to move it. It sounds great right where it is. That's awesome. <laughs> well, how often do you record out here? 
I, I'm, I'm out here doing something every week. Wow. Yeah. You know, whether it's, you know, whether it's I'm doing overdubs or drum tracks, you know, file stuff for people yeah. wherever they are. Yeah. And doing that, I do a lot of pre-production work here. Yeah. I do post stuff, you know, I'll do vocals and stuff we're producing or, okay. you know, developmental stuff or records yeah. we're doing, just whatever. And it's, I'm, I'm finding that I'm, I'm busier out here than I expected to be in some ways, hmm. you know. When I built it, it was it was with the idea of you know this is this sort of thing is probably going to come in handy. I mean, you know, it was no new thing in '07 to have your own studio and doing file work. That was not a new concept. But for me, the idea of doing it, uh, what what was new about it for me was I was so busy in town, do, just doing the session thing all the time yeah, right. that. I just thought, well, you know, occasionally I'll do some overdubs out here for people, and man, that, what a nice thing. I can kind of walk out my back door and do that. Mm -hmm. And when I initially built it, it took a minute before those things, those calls started to come in. Mm -hmm. But once word got around that, that I was doing it, it it's, it's blossomed into some really good good stuff. Yeah. You know? It's interesting because there's a lot of, players that are kind of coming into the industry and finding this new way of recording mm -hmm. the technology has made it so convenient yeah. for people to y y create stuff yeah. and and pass files around and do things and and i know you say it wasn't such a new thing in 2007 but it mm -hmm. was technology has changed even from 2007 oh, yeah. Yeah. that yeah. um that was amazing in mm -hmm. 2007 yeah and a lot of people are finding ways to create, they're creating opportunities from this technology mm -hmm. that weren't there yeah. for a lot of players and, and players like me that aren't working on Music Row or doing uh, a lot of studio work in parts of Nashville or any other town mm -hmm. where there's uh, kind of a handful of session players mm -hmm. that do a lot of that work. Mm -hmm. So, but I find it fascinating that you are a busy guy. I mean, you stay busy in Nashville all the time, and you always, or you have for a very long time, mm -hmm. that you're getting into this, or you've yeah. gotten into this work as well. Mm -hmm. Not out of necessity, but out of, hey, this might be nice. Well, it, 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 hasn't, it hasn't been entirely out of necessity, yeah. but what has been a surprise is the shift in the amount, the volume of work that we were accustomed to do. Because I've been here a long time yeah. and have sort of ridden a pretty nice wave in Nashville of work, the volume that, that I was accustomed to doing was triples every day. Wow. You know, and, 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 and sometimes you could, go, you could carry on through the weekend, you know, and... Yeah. and it was just amazing how much was going on. What years? This was through the '90s. Yeah. Like I came here in 1990, mm -hmm. and and the, it, the the sort of boom was really. Uh, I couldn't tell you with absolute historical fact when the the start of all that was, <laughs> but I know that in the very early '90s, it seemed as if we were riding this unprecedented run of business in Nashville. That was that 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 was 
it was just amazing how much was happening, how many record companies were here yeah. signing acts and recording them. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't even know how many labels we had at the time. It was amazing. Right. And so coming from the peak of all of that to where we are now with this whole, the whole new reality that's happening, uh, the volume of the work downtown has shifted. There just aren't as many records being made as there used to be. Right. So with that comes attrition, you know, yeah. however that plays itself out. Yeah. And the advent of the home studio thing became useful on a number of levels, you know. It, it became a supplemental income to do just overdubs for people yeah. that needed that. And then it became a new way well, I should say a new way for Nashville to do production work. Like maybe go in and cut your basics at Ocean Way or Blackbird or wherever. Right. And then, thank you very much, we've got our, we've got our rhythm tracks. We're going back home now yeah. to finish our record. Yeah. And that sort of thing radically changed the way the studio business operates, it radically changed the way the session industry rolls. Mm -hmm. uh, lots of in-house rigs like this has, has uh, have had an impact on the cartage companies mm. that count on delivering gear every day to yeah. studios, you know. So uh, you just across the board. Hmm? You haven't needed them in six years. Here. Not that kit. Not that kit. <laughs> that kit will never move. I got a bunch of kits down at Drum Paradise. But that, that kit, kit will never will move. move. Right, right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think. Well, I don't know. I might change it around at some point. But <laughs> I've, I've, I've just had. I'm not bored with them yet. No. You I know. Can imagine. Yeah. It's. It's. I don't know. It's just. It's just interesting how things have shifted and mm -hmm. the pros and cons. Yeah. And how being able to create on your own, how that's shifted. Yeah. The landscape. Oh yeah. And. I find over time when I talk to a lot of players who are doing sessions or working, when it comes to the overall music industry, they're, they don't really know what's going on. They're just doing the work. So, I mean, mm -hmm. like you say, you, you know, I can't tell you when it started in the 90s or when it peaked or when it was. I'm just working Yeah. and going, you know. But, and you've adapted to right. the changes. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things I did that that was indirectly a plan, I suppose, but 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 oddly, I came I came to Nashville from Memphis, which is my, that's where I'm from. Yeah, and but my career was based then in L.A. and the in the West Coast. Yeah, and so I was commuting from Memphis to L.A. or San Francisco to do the bulk of my work and then occasionally I'd come up here for something yeah. and then I would do whatever there was available to do in Memphis, right? Yeah. So when we decided to come here, um, I didn't, I really didn't have like a set plan. I just knew that I was going to come here and be, attempt to be a full-time session guy. Now this is coming off of you know, I, I was what what I was accustomed to prior to being here was making a record, 
and then going and subsequently touring and supporting that record. And I did that with a couple of records with Joe Walsh. I did that with records with Neil Young, mm -hmm. Jackson Brown, mm -hmm. Bonnie Ray. I mean, a lot of different people. Uh, that's that's how I understood the ebb and flow of 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 the business to be. Was that you, know? you think that was pretty common across the board for most? Well, it, 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 when I was working in L.A., yeah, I wasn't part of the film and TV industry. I was a band guy, you know. So gotcha. so my deal was about oh we got to go make a record and then let's you know the record gets done in X amount of time and then okay I'll see you in whatever five months or four, whatever it's going to be, we gotta, we're going to go tour. Yeah. And so, to me, that was, that was what I understood as the normal way to go work. Right. So when I came here, uh, I remember sitting down uh, w with Harry Stinson yeah. in 1990, mm -hmm. And I've I, I called him and asked him to go to lunch with me, mm -hmm. and he was sweetheart, man. Mm -hmm. And so we went and had lunch, and you know I just said, "Well, well, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> what do I need to do? You know, I've got this resume, blah 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 blah. You know, and and uh, what what do I need to do here? And he go, and and he just said, "You know, man, take as many meetings as you feel like you want to take, and give as many tapes out as you feel like you want to give out." But he said, man, what's really going to happen is you've, you've got to go through the process of being here determined to be here. Yes. And the, and the community has got to see that you're in for the long haul. Yeah. Because there are a bunch of guys just like you that have moved here for the, for the same thing in mind, yeah. making a living in Nashville, yeah. doing sessions, right? Uh, and so align yourself with whoever you dig in town, make friends with people, and eventually, you, and, and he said, I can't tell you when that's going to be, right. you know, but eventually you will get a phone call. Somebody's going to give you an opportunity, and then it's your door to walk through, you know. And this, and this, you took this meeting in 1990. In 90. So at that point, you had had a, quite a resume. Yeah, oh yeah. Built up. Yeah, yeah. And and I knew better than to think. I didn't come here assuming mm -hmm. that I was just going to show up. Yeah. And and play with just, Neil Young. Yeah. That I knew better than to think. Oh wait a minute, because that that kind of work doesn't go on in the studio that much here. You know that the sort of stuff I was doing wasn't as common at that time. It was it was the mainstream country industry that was the bread and butter of the session work, you know? Yeah. And I knew better than to ex assume that I would just start working. Right. But what I was not prepared for was how long it took to start working. Wow. Yeah. And that was, man, that was a very sobering period of time. It took almost two years okay. to get, to start getting a call. Like to get to getting phone calls, you know, to, to do sessions. What happened during those two years that led up to those regular phone calls? Do you remember doing anything specifically? Uh, I remember hanging around at the house that we had just built <laughs> a lot, you know, <laughs> at the time I was smoking cigarettes and I did a lot of 
smoking cigarettes and looking at my backyard going, how in the hell am I going to pay for this now? You know, (laughs) because the phone is not ringing. I'm not on the road with anybody. I just finished touring with Joe and, and that sort of, we were done, you know, and, and, uh, and, and that was kind of over with. And I thought I was going to pick up one more tour with him that would have padded me for a while, but it did, it didn't happen. Mm. And, uh, man, I sat here, honestly, wow. and depleted my resources and waited and waited and waited and, you know, uh, just hung in there, basically. <laughs> you know, I, I had, I did have people that that were pulling for me. Michael Rhodes was, uh, is a bass player here in town that was, he was one of the guys that, was really influential in getting me to move here. Oh, and, okay. Yeah, because we had met prior to my getting here, and we we played well together, and we became buddies. And where did you meet him? How did you know? In, I met him. I met him on a Warren Haynes session up here at Westwood Studio. And it was just, and it, it was kind of impromptu. It, it was just the three of us. We got together and just started kind of jamming, really. Yeah. But but we were we played and. That connected, and then he came down to Memphis and worked a bit. I got him down there okay. on a couple of things, and we just stayed in touch. And it it was just one of those things where we knew we we had business to do together. You know, we knew that was going to happen some way. Right. But he was the driving force because he was already pretty well established. That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah. Was he already yeah. doing it? Yeah, he was working a lot for the guys. You know, Barry Beckett was his, you know, guy. And, yeah. And and so, at that time, you know, Michael was was right up in the middle of what you would want to be doing yeah. here. And yeah. and yeah, he he really encouraged me to to make the move and the change. And mm-hmm. and uh, so uh, he helped me. You know, it took, but it still took. But right. it took. You know. Right. Well, that's interesting. I mean, and and Michael still is in it. You know, oh yeah, very much so. Mm-hmm. Um, for those who don't know, but uh, yeah. it's just interesting to know kind of where you were yeah. in those two years mm-hmm. and the connection with Michael. And yeah. for players that are maybe just trying to survive through their their yeah. two years yeah. or getting through that period of time, mm-hmm. is there a Michael Rhodes in their life? Hopefully so. Is, <laughs> is connected somehow, Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, and has their finger on the pulse of what's uh-huh. going on and, and, and winning over those, having those people on your team, uh, yeah. you know, kind of. That's right. Um, mm-hmm. Anybody else like that? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. most definitely. Um, uh, as we're talking here, uh, there's a, uh, you know, there's well, there's two guitar players, Richard Bennett and Kenny Greenberg. Yeah. And both of those guys were, like, Richard was very early on. Well, Kenny was actually the first he was producing he and Wally Wilson were producing a Joan Baez record wow. and ironically as the as everything works out Kenny really liked the way I played eighth notes on Rockin' in the Free World on that record and he found out that I was here and he wanted to use me so I can't tell you why that connects with making a Joan Baez record but <laughs> that's what happened yeah, and and so, so Kenny was hired me for I think that might have been the first 
like proper record I did here, you know. So you and you, and you were saying you know like I'm not going to just assume that hey look I've played with these people. No, but, no, no, no. But no. it did help you in that sense. Ultimately, ultimately yeah. it did. But it, but I didn't expect that to be. This is going to bust the door down as soon as I get into town. Yeah. You know, I just I didn't know how any of it was. Obviously, I couldn't have known how it was all going to work out. Yeah. But yeah. but ironically, that's how that worked out. Yeah. You know, and and so I got work from that. And then Richard Bennett, I'm not quite sure how he got wind of me, but but he did, and Richard hired me, and that was that sort of started the ball rolling mm-hmm. in in the more of the country world here because Richard was producing um, Kim Ritchie and George yeah. Dukas and 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 so that's how I got started with Richard among other records, but that's initially how we started, and then Tony Brown was the first established main, you know, like really big time Nashville producer guy. Yeah. He was the first one of those cats that called me. Okay. And he was uh he couldn't have been sweeter to me. Uh I want to I want to back up mm-hmm. um and kind of get the backstory of uh, up to 1990 if if we can. Okay. Um, do what year was uh, I hope you dance? Leanne Womack, do you remember that? Uh, so that was the 90s? Yeah, that's, man. Um, the reason I bring that up is my dad bought that record. Uh-huh. I didn't own a lot of country. I was still living in Ohio. Yeah. And I saw that record, and I was like, I'm really curious about Nashville. And so mm-hmm. I, I just combed over those liner notes, and mm-hmm. that's the first mm-hmm. time I saw your name. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, um, uh-huh. and, of course, I, I stole that record from my dad, and I yeah. still have it. And, uh-huh. and it's great. It's yeah. a great record. Um, it is a great record. Yeah, we cut that at the old RCA studio. Okay, mm-hmm. that was the first time I'd I'd heard of you. Yeah, and I was just curious where that falls in that timeline. I think I want to say that that record that's like ninety five, maybe ninety four, okay. ninety five, so, somewhere in there. Yeah, early early mid nineties. Yeah, so kind of early or just getting started. You're probably in full swing. I'm, I'm guessing in ninety five. By ninety five, I was yeah. Ninety five was the first like. Well, 94 was good. 93 was actually good as as far as getting started. Yeah. But 90, yeah, 95 was like kind of the watershed year where I felt like I felt like I'd found my place here. Yeah. You know, and and um I was getting calls from people that like who's that guy? Oh, well, who's that? Yeah. Let's give that guy a go, you know. So yeah. I was getting those rings and 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 just doing fun stuff and interesting, you know, for, for Nashville at the time, we were, we were in the midst of some change, you know, musically right. and things were starting to get more pop and rock and different influences were coming in yeah. Yeah. and uh, edgier kind of stuff. Right. And so I was really fortunate to be here to, to jump onto that because I knew a little something about it, yeah. you know, come with my background that I had. So, right. Well, that's what I want to get to is that Mm -hmm. um, you talk about having these opportunities to work with people or a guitar player or a producer, and and there's something about what you're doing is that's catching their ear Mm -hmm. and saying, hey, who is this guy? And and so words getting around about who you were and what you were doing in the 90s when you first moved to town. But what can you tell us about uh, what you, what led up to the 90s? I mean, what's your background that maybe... 
gave you the way you play. Oh yeah, your approach, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, your ability to record. Yeah, be a be a, a drummer in the studio, and as opposed to, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, well that goes. And I don't know if it goes back to it goes back to where Memphis. you were born. Oh no, it definitely goes back <laughs> or where to where you grew up. Well, I, it's Memphis is where I grew up, and and from the time I was three years old on. Yeah, and uh, there's there's really there are two guys that taught me the the method of recording that that I wanted to have to make a living mm-hmm. playing drums. And the two guys that really taught me that, there were guys that came before them, but that taught me about playing and being live, a great live work and learning how to do that. But the serious recording bit, yeah. uh, the two guys that were the most influential in my life were Bobby Manuel and Jim Stewart. And, and Jim Stewart was the founder of Stax Records. Okay. And his partner in a production company, that was post Stax era, mm-hmm. just post Stax. Okay. Um, uh, his partner was Bobby Manuel. They started a new production company that Atlantic Records funded, hmm. which is a whole other story, but there's a lot of history around all of this. There's a guy called Jerry Wexler from back in the day, and Jerry was the guy who made Muscle Shoals in Memphis happen, mm. okay, wow. from the business record company standpoint. And so, so I was trained by those two guys in the school of Al Jackson. Yeah. You know, that, I mean, really, that's, that's really what it all watered down to. Mm. You want to do this for a living? Here's what you do. And they threw me out on the floor. And I was a kid, you know. I was going to say, when you, when you say school, I mean, like, how do you approach this? Situation. You get to be, I was lucky enough to get to be allowed to sit in the control room. Al was gone, I mean, Al was dead by now. But but I got to be on sessions at this studio and I watched these men work and, and I got to ask them questions and I got to, I got the opportunity when no sessions were going on, I was the beneficiary of Bobby going, get out there on the kit, you know, and just let's, let's get a groove going and start playing. And, you know, I'd start playing and I would think I'm, you know, really dialed in and grooves happening or we're rocking, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and he'd go, you're slowing down, you're speeding up, you're slow. I mean, you know, and I couldn't tell. I just, I I wasn't, I just wasn't burned in yet Mm -hmm. to really feeling groove. And, they just hung with me, you know, and Bobby especially. And I've just, I just last week did some overdubs for him. He sent me files up here. Wow. And I haven't seen Bobby's face in 25 years. Wow. You know, and uh, so, so full circle, you yeah. know, he sent me files to do, and he just goes, man, I want you to do this for me. And he and he called me Sunday and left a message. And he goes, "You got it. I don't know what I taught you, but you got it." Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I mean, I almost started crying when when it, I got to listen to the message yeah. because that was if he says I'm grooving, I believe it. You know. Yeah, yeah. So those guys, and this is like, 
late 70s, early 80s. Can you remember something that they told you, like, was, I mean, you're talking about tempo. Yeah. Are there any other things you can think as far as, like, touch, approach? Um, consistency, you know, uh, uh, velocity. Yeah. Consistent velocity of hits. That was a big thing. I remember uh, it was an old MCI console in, in their control room, and uh, I remember we would sit there, like I would go and play, and I would come back in and I would watch the VU meters like this on the snare hits, right. and, and I could see, you know, just slight changes in the velocity, you know? So we would work on consistent placement of the notes. So that was late 70s, mm-hmm. very early 80s, yeah. and you were still in Memphis. Right. How do we go from there to... To here. Touring with Neil Young and <laughs> well, <laughs> Joe Walsh is 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 well. Actually, no. There's there was two steps in that chain. The first step is Nico Bolas. For those of you who don't know who Nico is, he's just a brilliant recording engineer from Los Angeles. He's mm-hmm. recorded umpteen amazing records out okay. there that we've all. I mean, millions. These records have sold gazillions of copies. So you know anyway, his records for sure. Like. Don Henley building the perfect bass. That's among many others. Okay. So anyway, Nico uh, was a staff producer at a place called Record One in L.A. for years and then left to go independent. And his first independent engineering gig was this record in Memphis that I played on for this guy called Rob Junkless. And he was a new signing on a, a label in Manhattan. Rob wanted to make his record in Memphis, and this is how this all came about. Yeah. So I met Nico. We became really close friends. I actually sublet a bedroom out of my apartment downtown to him, and we just hung out all the time, you know, for eight or ten weeks. Wow. We became really good friends yeah. and maintained that to this day. And um, around that same time, Joe Walsh, was coming in and out of town to in, in Memphis and was dating a girl who happened to be the best friend of my wife. Wow. Who then was not my wife. Okay. Okay? But um, we met via my wife at the time co-owned a studio in Memphis where I worked. This is how goofy the music business really <laughs> is, you know. And so here's this romance going on over here. And then, you know, Joe, uh, however it worked out, I met him one night in a bar. He was hanging out with, with his girlfriend and uh, decided he got the idea, wanted to jam. So we ended up back at my now wife's studio. Yeah. And uh, her husband, they all came down, opened the place up, and, and off we go. I, I'm finding myself, okay, now I'm jamming with Joe Walsh. Now, yeah. what the... You know, yeah. what's what's next? You know, <laughs> so 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 I've got made this Nico connection over here on Rob's record, yeah. also done in the same studio oh. that yeah. Joe was hanging out in. Yeah. So that connection's been made. Now I've got this other connection in, in L.A. made with Joe, and a few weeks after he left and, and sort of went on his way, I got a call from his tour manager saying, would you be interested in coming to Austin to uh, to play some? 
And I said, absolutely, I'm, I'm in. So we, I'll go to Austin, and I'm thinking we're going to go do we, – we, actually, we did. We did this gig in Dallas, some, like a roadhouse. I don't know what was going on. But Joe was a, a guest DJ down there at the time, and the bass player, Rick the bass player, um, the two of them would, were really great on, on uh, radio shows. So they were guest DJs for a week. I show up at the hotel. I get with them to do this gig. Where, when are we going to rehearse? Ah, oh, we'll rehearse tomorrow. Well, tomorrow comes. Nothing happens. When are we going to rehearse? Well, a week goes by. Yeah. And then finally, as it turns out, I got to go to L.A. and play at um, Irvine Meadows for a big KLOS annual party, birthday party, whatever it is. It's like 15,000 people, you know, and Joe's like one of the headliners. Oh. And I've never played a, a note with Joe, like on, I've never done a full show with right, him. Right, aside from the jam. I've done jams and stuff like that, yeah. but like proper. And so my burn-in with Joe was a literally walk on cold, you know, and play a show that was 86 were you like just guessing what he might be playing i had tapes of live shows so i had basic outlines of the music but you know what this is like i mean you know it's one thing to play cold it's another thing to rehearse yeah you know and but i got through it you know and and that became a a lasting relationship Nice. You know, for, for quite a number of years. So, 86, I'm working with, with Joe full time. Yeah. And so, my life is beginning to change as a drummer. You know, I'm starting to make like what I call a real living, you know, and things are starting to happen a little bit in Memphis with a few dates. I'm starting to get more calls to do sessions there. And then I get a call from Nico, and this would have been early 87. And Nico says, Neil's got this thing he's trying to do, and it's not working, and you're the you're the guy. you got to come out here and do this. And I said, what is it? And he said, it's a blues band. You know, and, and it's like he's tried everybody that he trusts, mm-hmm. and it's not feeling right. You know, so I finally got him to give to give this a try. Yeah. So you're flying to L.A. and you and Rick, the bass player with Joe, right. you guys are gonna we're gonna we're gonna play at, at uh, in L.A. So I show up and I go to um, S.I.R. in Hollywood. Yeah. That's not a studio. It's a rehearsal hall. Yeah. Well, the A and M, the A and M record plant, or the A and M records, whatever A and M remote truck. That's what I'm trying to say. Oh, okay. Is parked outside. It's a full. They've created a full blown studio inside one of the rehearsal studios. Mm-hmm. You know, and I walk in this room. There's you know a bunch of people. And it's a big band. You know, a bunch of horns. You know, it's a big band, and. And I'm kind of like freaking out, you know. It's like, man, I'm getting ready to play with Neil, you know. And I, 
I didn't know what at all to expect. And then Neil walks up to me, and he, he comes up to me. He's got shades on and a hat, and he holds his hand out, and he goes, hey, I'm shaky. And, and that's how we met, you know. And I didn't know who Shaky was. I do now. Shaky's just, that's, we all know who Shaky is. He's, he's whoever Shaky is that day. Okay. You know? Yeah. And so Shaky that day was this blues guy, right? Okay. Yeah. And so um, we got it. We started playing. And man, it rocked. Wow. It happened. And we got, we cut that record in two or three days. I mean, we, there was no, it was live, you know, yeah. so there wasn't a lot of. Did you have any material, as far as this session goes, did you have any material before that? Were they just teaching you the songs as you went along? Oh, I had no preparation for okay. that. Yeah. It was, yeah, we were learning. We were running and gunning. Yeah. 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 So that's, Nico is who facilitated that. Gotcha. So from a couple of different directions, that's how the L.A. thing kind of started to happen. Then then a Jackson-Brown relationship came That's out of awesome. that. Yeah. Bob Glaub, the bass player, uh, um, a Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young record. Bob was helpful in getting me on that. It was just crazy. You know, it's word of mouth and, you know. Uh, Can we go back? I don't want to rehash certain things, but I want to kind of figure out what it was about your playing that made these yeah. opportunities uh -huh. uh, fruitful? Groove. Yeah. Yeah. Not chops. And because I'm not that kind of player. I'm really not. I'm a yeah. single stroke, pretty, you know, pretty fundamental kind of player. I, I really am. I, I, I'm not a. And, and it, it, was that a decision? Was that just well, based that, on influence? Well, remember. When I got to work with Bobby and Jim, right. the question was, can you make me a great drummer? That wasn't the question. The right. question was, can you teach me how to make a living in this business? Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. And and so they, they pretty quickly broke me of, of trying to blow chops, and, and, yeah. uh, and, and I took that to heart. Because I was really into the prog rock thing in the, back then. I mean, I was way into Yes and, you know, Genesis and Gentle Giant, on and on and on and on. Yeah. I was really into that stuff. I read somewhere you just, you were a Bill Bruford fan. Big time. Yeah. 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 First Yes record is one of the coolest records ever made. Yeah. yeah. You know? Oh, too, and what's man. fascinating about that record is how groovy it is. I didn't know it at the time. I wasn't smart enough to know that at the time. But Bill was playing great grooves along with the technical stuff he was doing. He was grooving his ass off, mm -hmm. you know? And, and so, I, you know, that meant a lot to me. You know, while I'm in the bedroom practicing with my headphones on, mm -hmm. you know, trying to work out Bill's parts, yeah. you know, he was, it was, he was grooving. Yeah. Right? So, so that... Uh, is that does that answer your question? It does. It does, and it, it leads me to something that happened to me mm -hmm. relating to you. Uh, I'm like I said, I moved here in '99, and one of the uh, people I got to play with is a singer songwriter from California named Susanna Springs. Okay. And you were on a record of hers, I think, 2004. Uh huh. 
And uh, I only did a handful of shows with her. And I, but I told this story a couple times. I don't even know if I've done it on the podcast. But I've relayed this epiphany that I had. Mm-hmm. So it was probably 2005 or so, shortly after this record came out. Mm-hmm. She was covering a lot of songs from that record. And we weren't passing around MP3s. It was, right. here's a, some CDs, I'll meet you yeah, at your right. house. Yeah, right. Yeah. Learn these songs on this record. And here's three other CDs with some demos of new songs that I'm working up. Great. I, again, open up the CD. I'm going through the liner notes. Who's on this record? I wanna, I'm trying to wrap yeah. my head around and become familiar with who's what. Uh-huh. You know, who's playing guitars, playing steels, playing drums, of course. And um, I don't remember seeing your name, but when I saw who you worked with, and I, I, I'm like, that must have been who mm-hmm. I saw was Chad. Because here's what happened. I'm writing the charts out. And, and trying to get a, a feel for learning the songs. And the songs on her record with all these players that I, I had recognized, I don't know if it was Paul Franklin and uh-huh. you or yeah. whoever, that I'm like, oh, I get it. It fits the song so well. Mm-hmm. I already know this song. Yeah. The groove is there. Uh-huh. The parts are there. Um, there's this transition into the bridge, so maybe catch this push here or there. But all the parts are there made my job so easy i just really had to embrace the feel mm-hmm. of what you right. had put down there mm-hmm. then i go to the demos that weren't of the same caliber mm-hmm. of the master record that she yeah. had out right which made sense and i'm not sure who played on it or mm-hmm. what but these players had chops yeah and uh, played some kind of cool things from a drummer standpoint, mm-hmm. but man, it was a pain in the ass to learn those songs. <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. And yeah. that's the point where I went. I thought, I think there's a reason why Chad was hired to play on this record, and maybe this other player wants to be doing these masters mm-hmm. records, and he's trying to show people what this is. I'm just assuming, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, but he's trying to show people producer or the other musicians what he can do right. around the drums yeah but it doesn't fit the song right and mm. i ha- had a harder time with those songs than i did yeah. the other ones and it was because the part uh, that was the epiphany i had because i'm thinking how do guys do this how do these players that i look up to are playing on all these records that i'm listening to and you were one of them and continue to be that and I, I hear the simplicity, mm-hmm. and I hear not only that, but the right part for the song. And so maybe an extension of that would be my question. How do you guys come up with <laughs> the right part Man. With the, with, when, they lay, when they play that song for you mm-hmm. in the control room, and you have to walk in there mm-hmm. and play it right the first or second time? Mm-hmm. It's not about playing the simple parts. I mean, yeah, it is about, I mean, the feel, the groove, everything. They, it has to be precision. Yeah. But what's even more so impress, impressive to me is that the right part, the right kick pattern, the little things, Yeah. you know, mm-hmm. that works. Uh, the best way I know, I mean, there's... There are a lot of different ways that that comes to be. Uh, 
mm-hmm. you know. But the best ways don't say Memphis because no, 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 I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I no. can't change his. That's right. No, what I was going to say is is there's a structural way that you can go about doing that, and that is with charts and and you know you know usually like if we're making a record for somebody, yeah. then there's a demo, yeah, the same demo you're listening to, mm-hmm. right? And so we've got to. There may be specific things about that demo that the artist and producer want to have. Still. Okay? Yeah. So that gets written in. Yeah. You know, that's just automatic. You write it in, and then you go and you, you play that. Mm-hmm. But what I find, and, and that's great. I mean, it's, that's a perfectly normal, very. It's part of the process. Very much so, yeah. And yeah. it's just it's very common. Yeah. You know? But what I find... The records that I that I get the most excited about playing on like that yeah. are the ones that are literally a musical conversation between the guys that are playing. Mm-hmm. So it so it becomes it it becomes our experience with that music, you know, as a band. Yeah. And yeah. and that if we if we catch it right nobody's thinking really and so sure. how do i tell you what to play when i don't even know what i'm going to play in eight bars from now okay you know what i mean yes i mean you know the basic framework of what i'm going to play is whatever that the pattern the fundamental yes. pattern is there but the little corners turning and yes. the the way we rise to the chorus or the way we fall to the you know whatever the breakdown that stuff I don't know, yeah. and and I mean I, I this happens uh, uh, this I, I know uh, I've laughed about this with Peter Frampton before because because when I record with him, you know one of the things that he that he likes is the fact that I never do it the same way twice, mm. you know. That might not be everybody's cup of tea that way, but but that's something he likes. So and and that's the way that I play. It's real instinctual, you know, and 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 it's it's it gets back to. I don't really have a technical explanation for what I'm going to no, do. No, but I but I understand yeah. what you're saying, and there's an element of improvisation. Absolutely, that's there. And yeah, if you're and, and and the unknown, and and that's the place to be. That's where I want to be. Yeah, you know, I don't want to be. Oh, okay. I've got a dotted quarter note, and that's going to tie to an eighth note, and we'll do the eighth note push, and it'll be exactly that way every single time we do this right here. You know, this that kind of structure. Yeah, I, I can do that, and have made a living, and I'm happy to have made a living doing that. But if we're talking about getting in the zone, yeah, and getting into the that place, you know, that is, I mean. I just don't know what that is. Yeah. I swear to you, I don't know what that is. It's like standing on the edge of a very, very small branch that could really be disastrous right. at any second, you know? And that's my favorite place to be. But when it's happening, it's really happening. Oh, fuck yeah. If when it's really, really happening, you're, you're in, you are in the zone. You are, because you are, you're playing. You're doing music with God.
Nashville's still a rhythm. It's still a rhythm section town, but it is most definitely more influenced by loops, grid, electronics. That's definitely yeah. a much bigger role in the way they're they're uh, making records in town right now. So how does that affect your approach to? Well, I mean, it depends on at what stage do when i get called into play what stage of the process is the record mm -hmm, in right i mean if it's a track guy producing it uh he may only want me in there to to cover some fills and get some samples and you know yeah some cymbal crashes or i, I don't know just whatever maybe maybe mess around with some grooves yeah but but as far as uh structure goes you know song structure give me some verses give me a half a dozen choruses whatever and that's kind of it you know so yeah, so you're playing like a chorus by itself and they're going to mm -hmm. stitch yeah, it together yeah it's it's literally yeah where it's where it's it's you're not necessarily going in there counting the song off and playing it from top to bottom yeah you know yeah. or if you do you might do a couple of passes like that and then invariably they'll ask you well Hey, would you mind going doing the verse one more time? Maybe change the fills a little bit and yeah. get some get, give us some options for drum fills or yeah. give us some snare drum options sonically, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. Right. Now I'm talking about track stuff. Okay. You know. Now if we're talking about a programmer stuff, yeah. if if we're talking about rhythm section stuff, then we're still counting the song off. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're still performing. We're still getting drum sounds. Right. Traditional recording session, guys, everybody, you know, reading over the charts, right. listening to the demo. Mm -hmm. I'm working with a friend of mine where he's just, he's sending a demo track my yeah. way. Yeah. Vocals and an acoustic guitar. Uh huh. No bass. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes no vocals. Oh, sure. They haven't finished writing the uh -huh. verses yet. Yeah. There's just like a little bit of a hook, and they're singing a word and humming the rest. Mm -hmm. So they're trusting me to come up with something yeah. that the bass player will lay down later. You know what you're doing? You're doing you're framing a house, yeah. musically speaking. Right. And not and and that's not. I'm not saying that in a disparaging no, way. No, I know what you're saying. It's just the practical. Mm -hmm. That's the job assignment. You know, mm -hmm. I get those every all the time. You yeah. know, and it's just okay. Well, I got to put a drum track on this for them to build on. You know, that's all it is. Right. And you can't, you can't, you really can't. I mean, you can certainly try to bring your best stuff, but, but th there's that's not a musical conversation. <laughs> you know, that's just not it, that's not possible. So it's a structural compositional yeah. way of doing music, right. which is perfectly valid right. but it's not in the room together that's you know? just the nature of the way yeah people are producing yeah. music and you know what man part of the reality of that is is budget you know yeah. budgets have, are down so um it it's it's not solely like oh no we like electronic music we want to do electronic music it 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 could all it could certainly be that, but it could also be and is very commonly we can have there's here's the budget. How do you want to make this record? You know, uh, there are track guys in town that can give you really great sounding tracks. Yeah, all sequenced, every bit of it. Yeah, you know, and it'll sound exactly like that, 
but it's you know and they can do that for you at a at a, dra- a radically reduced price uh, relative to what it would cost to hire a whole band yeah. and a studio and blah, you know, on and on and on yeah. and on. Yeah. So, so there's financial consideration in all that now, too. Yeah. What advice would you give to young players and what advice would you give to experienced players experienced play oh wow Uh, (laughs) Uh, okay so when i say experienced players someone like me uh that's been playing for almost 30 years yeah um but still i'm trying to learn every single day and i could use Mm -hmm. advice yeah okay okay (laughs) the thing that i would tell young cats is you got to find your peer group in this you got to find the people that you that are just like you looking to make something happen because collectively you will you know in in your your own team you'll come up with your own way of doing it your own language and it's just a question of putting yourself in in out there get in the middle of what's happening and and connect yeah you know that's that's essential and then you know, I think I think understand the lineage, you know, really don't like for example, don't come to Nashville and say that Garth Brooks and I love Garth, I've worked for him mm-hmm. and this is not a critique. But don't say I want to listen to old classic country music like Garth Brooks. No, that's Garth is great and Garth will go down in the history books and all that. But Let's go on back a little bit, you know, right. and learn something about the lineage, whether yeah. it's Memphis or Nashville or L.A. or Detroit or Philly or New York or, or St. Louis or Chicago, wherever, New Orleans. I mean, I could go on and on and on. Sure, but, sure. But know something about where your music comes from. Yeah. Really do some studying. Yeah. You'd be amazed how unoriginal music sounds to you if you really do some homework because everything it's a derivative we're we're all doing a derivative it's just generational jumping yeah and man it comes from field blues you know it comes from yeah it this stuff is not we're not it's not that old you know, it's not in the, in the, the drum set's picture. not that old, and right? Pop, yeah, right. Yeah. So, so, so it's not. It wouldn't be hard to learn these things, right? And it wouldn't take it wouldn't take too much of your time to do that. It's a lot easier to access these days than yeah. it was when I was a kid. Yeah. So that that would be something I would really encourage doing. Yeah. And then if you're really really serious about doing this for a living, then do it, and don't look back. Yeah. You know, and there there will be a moment because we everybody goes through that that thing where it's tough, haven't made the rent, the phone's ringing, bill collector, whatever it is, and you're still trying to make it work on hundred dollar a night gigs on lower broad. You know, but if you're serious about this, you got to do it. Yeah, you just got to do it. Yeah, yeah, right. And then for the older guys, <laughs> man, if you're still here, I don't need to tell you anything because you're not going to go away. You know, it's go- you're going to find a way to make it work. 
Yeah. You know. Yeah. And and in you know and it's kind of the it's, I think it's more or less the same thing, isn't it? It's it's. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, all those things are important. You know, when you're saying go back, check out these things. I'm, you know, I I'm I'm listening to every word that you're saying with yeah. that because. I don't do that enough. I mean, mm-hmm. I have my influences from the, I mean, personally, you know, yeah. the 60s and 70s, and you mentioned Bill Bruford, and I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. of course. And, right. Yeah. But to go back beyond that, mm-hmm. and I'm not talking just about jazz, but about where blues and what has become pop. Yeah. Beat-oriented music. Beat-oriented yeah. music yeah. that uh-huh. um, just fits the type of work that keeps me busy. Yeah. And the drummers that, or going to influence that style. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I can recognize most of the time your snare drum sound. Oh, really? Yeah. We were talking about, I was playing um, on the drive up here, I was playing for Mike uh, this compilation Vince Gill mm-hmm. set that I bought for my mother in law. Yeah. And now I have, I listen to it myself. And uh, it's the, I think these days, it's like three or four CDs uh that you're on. Right. And um, I'm just trying to figure out what it is that you do to get this nice, um, there's a high-end pop, Mm -hmm. and there's um, that thing that sounds really great when you're recording. Mm. And it has that really nice, low fat. Yeah thing going Uh on yeah it cuts through the track nice yeah but um there's still a high-end yeah thing so i don't know if if it's if you're willing to divulge any oh sure i don't know i'm happy to tell you i'm happy to tell you um it's a it's a five by 14 ludwig standard from the 20s and it's a 10 lug i got the drum from jim pettit down in memphis drum shop and he really accidentally sold it to me. I don't think he ever really wanted to, <laughs> but I caught him. Oh, thank you, Lord! I caught him just at the right time, and he let it go. And it's it's not a pristine collector drum. He, he had modernized it. It had a uh, at the time when I got it, it had a a, a seventy early seventies P eighty five throw off on it, yep. and uh, die cast hoops, Gretsch hoops, and the big 60, uh, 60 uh, the Gretsch, real thick, I think it, they're 60s. Oh, wow. I yeah, know I mean, really 40s, wide. But, but, oh, okay, 60, yeah. not 40. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I'm using the percussion version of that now. Okay. Or pure sound, I mean. Okay. Um, and they're, they might be 42s or something. Mm-hmm. They're not 60s, but yeah. but it's more or less that. Yeah. That's, it, that's what that is. That's what that sound is. And... I got to tell you, man, that drum has been on almost every record I've ever done, along with other snares. Yeah. But that drum, I'll, it'll go away for a little while, and then it comes back. And I actually had a real scare with it last year because along the uh, the where the uh, throw-off hits, yes, there were some hairline cracks between the screw holes. Yes. You know? Yeah. And I thought, I'm going to have to retire this drum. I'm afraid that I'm really going to trash this thing. And uh, I, and Sam Bacco yep. built a plate to go inside that took the stress off the hole of the, the cracks. 
and then remounted. And I had Adrian Kurtzler make an exact P330 or P38, whatever it is, mm-hmm. the the Ludwig str- uh, throw-off from the 20s. He, uh, Adrian made that for me, and I put it on. Mm-hmm. And then the plates, they, and Sam assembled it all. And, man, I'm using that drum uh, a lot again. Is there a head combination or a tuning? Coated ambassador top, yeah. clear ambassador bottom. Yeah. And the tuning usually is like medium. It's not cranked yeah. real high. It's yeah. kind of medium. And it's fairly flexible, but the thing is with with the, with the die-cast hoops, it shuts down some of your overtones. It does, yeah. So the idea is I kind of want to let it ring because it's already shut down. Right. You know? And by the time it the mic translates what's there, yeah, and you get to the other end of it, whatever ring is there is is a pretty musical one, right? right you know, right. It doesn't take up too much space, too honky, and um, yeah. And if you throw a little compression on that, oh god, it's just it's just a great drum. Yeah, I, I've got a bunch of great snare drums that Adrian. Do you know who that is? I don't. Adrian Kurtzler. Is uh, he's in Italy, and look up, go check this out. Uh, whoever's listening to this, if you don't know who he is, just go to his website, AK Drums. Okay. And he builds as fine a, a snare drum, a metal. He's the king of metal drums, and um, I love metal. He drums. does all of Johnny's stuff, all the all the limited edition stuff for Craviato. Okay. That comes out the brass series, the copper, the hybrid, yeah. the blah blah blah. They've got a bronze series out now. Adrian makes all of those shells. Okay. He does all that work. That sounds awesome. Fantastic drums. Wow. But there's something about that old twenties drum. I mean, I you know. I just I don't know what it is, man. Mm-hmm. There really is, and it's. Well, it's the a- the diecast thing is a is a big part of it. Okay. But. The key is is finding a, a, a brass shell that will resonate the right way with the diecast hoops because they don't all do that. Yeah. You know, so it's a little bit of mix and match and hit or miss. Yeah. Cool picture of you with Bonnie Raitt. Yeah, that was good. Wow. That was, that was the end of a, of a tour I did for her. She is cool in uh-huh. person as yeah. she seems. Mm-hmm. First time I saw her play was in Austin. And this was, I mean, she was up and running pretty good by now. I think it was just before Nick of Time and all that. Yeah. That was her, that was the one, you know. Yeah. But uh, she was playing, I was playing with Joe, and it was the uh, that outdoor festival in Austin right on the river. And... Uh, we got there. Let's see. How does how did this go? Oh, right. So Nick Lowe was also playing. Wow. And and Nick, she she was in town to play that that festival at some point, and she was there to see Nick play, and then we showed up, and this was back in the day when when um, nobody was really concerned about. How, you know, if you have like forty beers instead of two, you know nobody cared. It just was it was wild back then, and and Bonnie had not decided to 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 totally, you know, put it all down yet. And 
So she she was just she wasn't really drunk, but she was the funniest. She was just wild, man. It was like she came when Nick came off the stage. They were everybody was hanging out in the dressing room, and we were just hanging. And the thing that I remembered, uh, and because I'm kind of like this new kid in this world at this point, you know, was, wait, this is '86 maybe. Okay, right around in there, and I'm I'm just like, just like eyes wide open, and she was. I just remember. I've never heard a woman cuss like that before in my whole life. This is unbelievably cool. I just thought it was, I just thought she was the coolest thing I'd ever seen, you know. And she was just like a guy, you know, sleeves rolled up, talking mm-hmm. gear, talking guitars, mm-hmm. songs, rowdy, you know, really in the moment, funny. Uh, it, it, she was just great, and and she's she's still great. I mean, yeah. she's still. Yeah. The spirit of her music is just still so there. Yeah. You know? I really miss her. I hadn't seen her in a long time. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to have to make sure. I think she's coming through town this summer. I'm going to... i got to get down and see her. A lot of us have played Rockin' in the Free World. Is there something about how that came together as far as the session? or? Well, yeah. That session was done at his barn... And uh, he has he uh, uh, has a farm, a ranch, south of San Francisco, and uh, it's up in the up in the San Mateo Mountains, I think it's called, looking over the ocean and uh, not far from Half Moon Bay. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, there's a barn on the very top of that, and uh, it's literally just a big barn, and it, and they can kind of converted it into like a big rehearsal space, you know? That's what we would think of it as, you know? Yeah. Dusty floors and nothing fancy and funky old couches and, you know, a refrigerator, and, and that's kind of about it, you know? And, and again, uh, the A&M plant truck was there, a uh, record plant truck was there, whatever. Well, I can't remember if it was A&M or record plant, but... but the remote truck was there, yeah, and um, we were mic'd up. And every day, he had this big easel set up with ma- big magic markers. And every day we would come in, and you know, he had this riff, and so we would just play this riff just over and over and over, and just. And it was exciting, you know, because it yeah. just felt like, well, man, yeah. this is good. And then he would write, he would stop, he'd stop, and then he'd run over there and he'd scribble a bunch of words on the easel, right? And then we'd come back and then he'd start singing, which working out a verse. Well, the song's got like 10 verses or something. I don't know how, I forget how many verses. Mm-hmm. And at that point in time, the songs he was writing, uh, were anthemic story kinds of songs. There's, uh, uh, there's another song called "Ordinary People" that that appeared on a, a just actually came out on a, on an old Blue Notes live record, hmm. that that was never released. Hmm. It's out now. So uh, uh, that song was that song's 21 minutes long. Jeez, you know, and but anyway, so Rocket and Free World is sort of in that family. And 
we just would work on it. We did it for days. You know, we'd hit on it for a while, and we'd do other songs too. But then we'd come back around, and he'd, each day or so, he'd come in with another verse or maybe two verses. So I think in the course of about a week, he had written the lyric then in its entirety. While you we, guys were there and, playing, yeah, and we yeah. tracked it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the first time we played the song, I'm pretty sure it was in Spokane, Washington, or it was in Seattle. Maybe it was Seattle first at the Paramount Theater. It was one of those. I can't, I can't remember which one was first. The first time we played the song and we when we hit the chorus and saw the reaction, we all, you know, it's like we knew. And the record wasn't out yet yeah. or any of that, but we immediately knew, okay, this one, this one's going to be hanging around for a while. That's an awesome song. Yeah. That's yeah. really great. That's cool. Yeah. I'll tell you another cool thing to check out of Neil's that I'm really proud of anyway. It's a moment in time. And that was, uh, it, it's another Google search for you or, or uh, a YouTube search. Yeah. And this is type in Neil Young, Paul McCartney, uh, uh, Day in the Life. Right. Have read, you seen that? No, I haven't. I yeah. read about that. Yeah. that yeah. You ought to check that out. Okay. Yeah. That that yeah. he had never Paul had never performed that. That's right. Before. He'd never performed the song. Yeah. And for whatever reason, I think he, I'd heard that he had attempted to do it, but for, I don't know. They didn't. Yeah. And uh, my understanding is that when he came out on stage, uh, this was the last night of our tour, and it, it was this gig called the Hard Rock Call, uh, Hard Rock Calling Festival in Hyde Park. And uh, man, that was a night. And, and this was the last. This was it. And he came out in the middle eight, which was the part of the song that he wrote. Right. You know? Yeah. And when he... it was he, between him and John, and they each took up sections. Yeah, that well, right? John wrote that. Uh, John wrote, I heard the news today, oh boy. He mm-hmm. wrote all that stuff. Right. And Paul wrote the woke up. Mm-hmm. That was his part of the song. Yeah. And that's when he walked out on stage. And he he'd, was aware of the fact that we'd been performing it, he'd been hearing about it. And nice. um, they and he and Neil are friends, and they'd been talking a little bit, and it, it happened. So so that's a... Did people know that he was going to be there on no, stage? No. No. We didn't even know for sure if he was going to come out we, until he came out. <laughs> it was intense, man. Did you have a chance to meet him afterward? Yeah. yeah. He hung out with us for a couple of hours after the show. That's great, man. Yeah, they because it was the last night, so they kind of set up a dinner thing back, back, you know, yeah. back the, in in uh, the tent or whatever behind the stage, yeah. and we got to hang out. And he was really not really nice guy. Jeez, yeah, he's a man. I'm such a huge fan. Me too. Well, who who isn't? Uh, you know? I know a couple people, but uh, uh, well, we don't want to know amazing. who they are. Amazing. Yeah. That is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Check that out. It's another long piece, you know. It's another one of those 10, 15 minute things, but You've been given your assignments. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But that's right, yeah. but it's just all this wide open cacophonous. When you said cacophonous a minute ago, that's what I thought about. You know. Jeez. That the cacophony in what we did with that song is is out there. <laughs> I just thought of something. Um, yeah. How do you stay sharp 
not being on the road, not playing all those long Well, sets. thankfully, knock on wood, thankfully the session work thing keeps me sharp enough. Yeah. And I do – I do. I, I'm not disengaged from live playing. I know the difference. Yeah. And and so there's a physicality that comes with playing live that's different. Yeah. It's more extroverted uh, in, in the way you play. Yes. Yeah, you because know, you're performing. You know, you right. literally are performing for people that expect you to be up there doing that. And uh, so I try to I try to stay sharp that way. And then the 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 session thing keeps keeps things going you know yeah and if i feel like it's really getting funky i come out here on this kit that's what you know? i was wondering yeah if 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 i go more than a week or two i have to i have to practice i've, I've got to do that yeah but that I've makes been, me feel better yeah i've struggled with i remember i used i went through a period for a while there where if i if i took a week off I was worried about going back in That's and what, so what it was like going to feel right like. Now. Yeah, yeah. I, I got past that. Okay. That might just be a matter of just letting go of that thought. You're you know? right. Uh, I just <laughs> I just ordered a book that a friend of mine suggested uh-huh. that I've heard many musicians suggest, um, and it's all about that. Yeah. For me, what it was was muscle memory concern. You know, and it's like, well, if I stand down, then if I show up and they hand me a, some burning chart or whatever, and I'm loose or not or, or tight and not strong to play, you know, how am I going to get through this? Am I going to be, you know, am I going to, are they going to figure out that I'm not together? Or are they, you know, it's, a, it's musician paranoia is frank, oh frankly gosh, what it is. Yes, yeah. And, and then eventually... I just I had to, I had to stop worrying about that because you know what I mean it's it, now if I lay off a bit and I go in on a date the first two first twenty minutes of playing are a little I have to I have to be economical with yeah, what I'm doing right, right. and then and then I'll start feeling the muscle burn again. And it'll all start making sense, and the the synopsis are all starting to pop again yeah, and fire. Yeah. And it's just like in an hour's time, it's like once I can start feeling a little soreness going on. Okay, it's like we're good, we're yeah, good. Yeah, this is all in my head. When you're in record, there's there's something that's supposed to happen mentally and physically with music that's elevated the consciousness of it is elevated and if you i mean if you do it for a long 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 time it's sort of like tight roping you know you could you could string up a tight rope across a cul-de-sac in my driveway to walk across or you could put the same tight rope between the world trade centers remember you know that right. that whole thing and it's still a tight rope you know, and it's it kind of doesn't matter where you are. It's still the same type. It's all good. You know, it's and it's it. That's a discipline. You know, it's it's not the distance that you fall or, or any of that. Yeah, it's just yeah. it's just here's where you are. You're right here. You know, and for X time, you're right here. And and that's, I guess that's training. 
you know, just I guess that's a thing that just occurs over time. Experience. Yeah, training, experience, you know. Right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. That yeah, book, uh, Effortless Mastery by Kenny Warner. Oh, okay. I haven't read it. I've heard it. It's come up um, over the years a couple times. Yeah. And finally, I'm like, I got to get so that book. You're going to do it, yeah. Yeah, my wife's like, I ordered it for you. That's cool. It'll be here Wednesday. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> It's hard for my little husband brain to move forward. Uh, she knew what she was getting into. Yeah, of course <laughs> she did. She knew before you did. Yeah, holy crap, yeah. man. Um, that's awesome, man. Chad, I appreciate it, man. Oh, man, Thanks you're very for, welcome. Thanks for thinking of me. No, of course. Appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, and letting us hang and come over. Oh, me. yeah, come anytime. Sure. I need company. I'll see you tomorrow. Come on. <laughs> Come, you'll help me. You can help me feed the duck and the horses and the dogs and the cats and the, <laughs> the skunk. The skunk. Wow. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, Chad is awesome. Super sweet guy. Um, I just I felt just lifted walking away from that. Great conversation. Uh, Mike Jackson was able to uh, join me and hang out. So um, appreciate uh, him being there with me. Um, but, uh, man, I hope everyone enjoyed that as much as I did and uh, got what they uh, could from it. Chad's a great guy and a great player. Hope you all take some time to check out his work if you don't know it. Is Zach Albetta. He'll be doing the uh, host duties for next week and uh, be putting out another great podcast. Uh, thanks again to Mike Jackson for helping me uh, with this. I'm on the road. I'm actually recording this outro on the bus, uh, trying to get it ready to send out today. And uh, so help will make that all possible so we can get it out to you. So once again, thanks for everyone's support. We really appreciate it. And uh, stay in touch, and uh, we'll see you around. Thanks. Bye-bye.